0: We hope you enjoy this week's talk from the morning services. Thank you for joining us today. Grace and peace to you.
1: Today's Bible reading is taken from Mark chapter 1, verses 9 to 15. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptised by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
2: Let's pray before we begin to look at those verses. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are a speaking God and that you speak by your spirit through your word. Please give us listening ears and a ready heart to hear you and respond this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. Good morning in the building. Good morning at home. I wonder whether you've ever been involved in a case of mistaken identity. I studied the Russian language as a student, and as part of my studies, I was in Russian. I was doing some teaching and some rowing at a rowing club there. And a few months in, I was taken by the club that I belonged to, to the southern Russian town of Rostov-on-Don to participate in a rowing regatta, catapulting the previously national Rostov regatta to a new proudly acquired international status. Uh, In the event, uh, sadly, I bombed out on the first day, and my uh, rather mediocre performance reassured the host that they had little to worry about in terms of losing their medals to the internationals. But for some strange reason, uh, it's still unclear to me this day, a camera crew identified me as an interesting subject and they came over to interview me and they spoke to me on a range of subjects uh, on which i spoke as truthfully and as best as i could in my broken russian and i thought no more of it Now, the next day, having failed to make it into the second round, I took the opportunity to have a wander around uh, the, no doubt familiar to many of you, city of Rostov. Uh, As I walked along in one of the parks in the centre of the city, remember, I'd never been here, I'd never been within a thousand miles of this place, I was hailed by two lads, John, John! which, as you can imagine, is a relatively unusual greeting to hear in the middle of Rostov-on-Don in deepest Russia. Privyet, said this enthusiastic face. Hello. We saw you on the telly last night. Aren't you the member of the British royal family who has come to participate in the Rostov International Regatta? I don't know, perhaps my... My Russian had been a lot worse than I thought. Perhaps the imagination of the local journalist had got the better of him. Perhaps the newsreel just lacked a bit of spice. I will never quite know. Sadly, I haven't enjoyed that particular kind of mistaken identity since. Mistaken identity. Mistaken identity was, and I think still is, the story of Jesus' life. Only, of course, it's the other way around. Not that, as a common person, he was confused for royalty, but that he, the king, the king of the world, was mistaken, and indeed is still mistaken, for something far less. And this case of mistaken identity, I think, is all over Mark's gospel. His opening summary we saw last week is about establishing Jesus' identity. As time goes on in the gospel, the disciples are marked by their inability to work out who he is. So they ask stuff like, who is this man? And Jesus himself seems particularly concerned with it. At the hinge of Mark's Gospel, chapter 8, we'll get there before too long, hopefully, he asks the question, the question that you kind of feel as you read it is just as much kind of directed at you, the readers, uh, as it was at the disciples, who do you think I am? I wonder, who do you think Jesus is? Well, today and in the coming weeks, we're going on a journey in Mark's Gospel, to discover or rediscover or deepen our answer to that. And I'm praying that as we do that, we're gonna see Jesus in a new way. To see him today in particular, in his amazing humility and his blazing glory. And all that so that we might be drawn to trust him and to make him our king all the more. So who is Jesus? Well, in today's reading, according to Mark, first of all, he is the humble man, he's the humble man. Verse 9 of chapter 1, at that time Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now this is almost a throwaway line before the big show that comes next, but stay with this verse for a moment. John the Baptist, you remember, he'd gathered a lot of followers. As his name suggests, he was baptizing them. Symbolic act of washing, of cleansing away sin to get them ready for when the Lord comes. And so the Lord must be coming. Now, where is he, this Lord? What heavenly chariot will he choose to make his appearance? How many camel outriders will he have to herald his arrival? None. Verse 9. At that time... Jesus came. Jesus, a bloke called in Aramaic Yeshua. This is actually a pretty common name in the first, in first century Galilee. Jesus from Nazareth, we're told. Nazareth, that is. Not Jerusalem, not Jericho. Nazareth. An unremarkable place in what was considered a particularly unsophisticated area, Galilee. It's like saying, and with apologies to anyone who comes from that, you know, Jesus from Woking or something like that. Working's lovely. <laughs> Here is, on one level, a man like any other. See his humility. But that's not the only factor that makes us think of his humility. See what happens next. Jesus, amazingly, is baptized by John. Now, this is extraordinary. Remember, baptism is a symbol of cleansing from sin. Jesus is not supposed to have any sin. Why is he getting baptized? Before I answer that question, let's just have a little bit of an aside here because this is an important moment. This is one of those moments in the Gospels that I think underline how trustworthy, how true they are. Perhaps you wonder, can we really believe the Gospels? Are they true? It's a fair question given they say an enormous amount and they make some big claims. One way to answer that question is to ask, do the Gospels contain anything, any information that would in some way be embarrassing to the first Christians because if they do contain information that might be embarrassing for the first Christians the Gospels are more likely to be true think about it put another way if you're making stuff up to persuade people of something that you know isn't true you don't add details that make your case less strong you don't put in stuff that might confuse people but Jesus's baptism is confusing The only reason I think it's included, frankly, is because it actually happened. And the guy who wrote this down thought that's what he needed to do, record the facts. Anyway, I digress. We were wondering, why is Jesus getting baptized? Well, Mark himself doesn't give any explicit answer. He's on to the next thing already. But a bit of cultural background can help us think about it a bit more. Ben, our associate vicar, pointed out as we study this as a staff team this week, that it was partly perhaps to recognize John's authority. It was Jesus' way of saying, I'm absolutely in line with all of your disciples. I'm behind you in your teaching. A second reason the theologians have often explained it in this way was as a sign of Jesus' humility, his humble identification with all humankind. Those of us of a certain age will remember Joan Osborne's 1995 song, What If God Was One of Us?, which made its way into the single charts around the world. The song explores what it might be like to meet God as man. And of course, it was a gift to generations of preachers uh, thereafter, because we know in Christ, He really has become one of us. And Jesus' baptism, perhaps, is one of those most powerful expressions of how Jesus lived in solidarity with us. He walked the same humble path of humankind that everyone else had to walk. So who is he, Jesus? Well, first of all, he is the humble man. Second, though, who is Jesus? He is the glorious God. Now, I wonder whether you spotted the contrast in here. There down goes Jesus with everyone else to get baptized. But see how he emerges. As he emerges from the water, the whole trinity bursts onto the scene. Verse 10, just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open, the spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. I guess we're all familiar from the, from the movies with the idea of the identity parade. Do you know the situation? Uh, you've got a group of suspects lined up. There they all are. And a witness has a look at them all and decide who it was that stole the double-decker, discerning though their palate may be. Now, securing an identity, as we all know, requires a witness. And that is kind of how Mark is working here. He's building up his gallery of witnesses. So he starts, verse 1, with himself. Look, I'm telling you, Mark, the writer, I'm telling you, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that's who he was. And then he lines up the prophets. Look, the prophets, the ancient prophets bear witness that Jesus is Lord. Then he wheels on John the Baptist. Look, John the Baptist is making the same point. And now finally, he brings out the ultimate witness. The heavens open, and God himself testifies about Jesus. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. There, There could be no higher authority speaking. The point is, here in Jesus, we have God's son. And the one who has his father's love completely. In fact, when we zoom out, it's kind of extraordinary the picture we have. We have the whole fullness of God right here. There's the spirit descending on Jesus there's the father speaking to him and there's the son embarking on his earthly ministry if you've uh, studied your bible you'll know that um, you will study in vain uh, to find the word trinity and you won't find any obvious lengthy explanations of how God is three in one but we do have moments like this moments which as the church wrestled with it over the centuries it just couldn't explain in any other way Except if God, the one true God, was both one God and three persons bound together in a relationship of love. So that's the glory of Jesus Christ. He's God the Son, inextricably bound up with the Spirit and the Father. And just before we move on from that, let's just recognize it was true then. It's true even now. Even now, when the Spirit comes into our lives... And gives us that deep assurance and conviction that Jesus is real, that we belong to him. We see this Trinity at work. Jesus is the glorious God. But one more thing before we move on. It's worth noticing, I think, how Jesus' humility and his glory they're kind of two sides of the same coin. And it's all folded together in this picture of perfect humanity. I think that's why we have what happens next. Verse 12, at once it says, the Spirit sent Jesus out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. Wilderness, wandering. If you know your Bible, you'll know this is not the first time that we've seen this kind of thing. Do you remember how the people of Israel wandered about in the wilderness for 40 years after their escape from Egypt? Now, compare and contrast the two. When the Israelites wandered, they wandered, didn't they? They strayed away from God. They gave in to temptation. But not so, Jesus. He's in the desert, but he doesn't give in. He is the perfect man that Israel never was. And in that sense, his glory is that he is both God and man. Now, why why does this matter? Why does it matter that he's both God and man? Well, think about it. If he were only God, then he would be powerful, but he would be distant, and he would be abstract. If he were only man, well, then he'd be near and relevant, but he'd be broken, just like the rest of us. He'd be ineffective. He'd got his own sins, his own death to die. But he is both God and man. Now, I wonder do you believe in that God? Do you believe that there is a powerful, all sovereign God who also is near to you, immediately accessible through his Spirit, who has walked your road in his Son? But we must move on because Mark isn't just telling us about Jesus to make our brains get bigger. Who Jesus is matters because Jesus is after something. And we've got to decide, do we want to take it from him? Do we want to follow him? And he explains that next in the language of the kingdom. Verse 14. After John was put in prison, it says, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. I think what's happened here is this, Jesus has arrived on the scene, he's come near. And because Jesus is the king of God's kingdom, that means the kingdom has come near. And the kingdom, wherever the king's reign is recognized, is about to grow. And this king, what does he say? He says, repent and believe. What does that mean? Number one, repent. To repent means to think differently. It means to turn around in your mind and therefore act in a different way. I don't know whether it's a bit of a random connection here. I don't know, but if you have watched the masked bands you know, at a big sports event or something like that? I'm a bit into that kind of ceremony and you see these band players marching, 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 until they come to the end of the field, and then they wheel around, and they head off in precisely the opposite direction. That is what it looks like to repent. It means confronting our sin, our selfish desires that want us to go in one direction, and we say no, and instead we wheel around, and we go in the other, we go Christ's way, because he's our king. And repentance is a continual feature of the Christian life. Now, there's a sense in which it has to happen in a very special way when we, when we first start. So when we begin the Christian life, you know, we have to say something like, look, okay, my, my life used to be the kingdom of me. I was the king or, or queen. But now I know who Jesus is. I'm changing that. I want to say from now on, the crown is going to be on Jesus' head. And I may often fail him, I'm going to deny that in all sorts of ways, but I'm really clear from now on, deep down in my heart, his, his direction, that's the one I'm aiming at. In that sense, the Christian life starts with a particular type of repentance. But repentance goes on. Repentance is actually an ongoing feature of the Christian life. Martin Luther, you remember the guy who nailed... And the, the the 95 theses to the door of, of Wittenberg Cathedral. The very first one of these was, our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. We're never past repenting. We're never past saying, oh, you know, I got that wrong. It's time to get back in line with the Lord Jesus. In fact, I think that's kind of one of the greatest signs of spiritual life. Not that a person never sins. We all do that. But that we're in the fight to repent and go back his way. That's part one of the response Jesus wants repent. But please don't hear that in isolation. Otherwise, we'll get completely the wrong end of the stick about Christianity. It's not about pulling, up, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. Jesus doesn't just say repent, he says repent and believe. And we absolutely need that second bit. In fact, as the New Testament goes on, the Bible tells us we are saved by believing. We need to believe. Now, I think it's worth explaining what believing actually means. Because belief can sound like all sorts of different things to all sorts of different people. I think some people treat belief, frankly, as a sort of slightly kinder word for doubt. Let me explain when they hear Jesus say believe what they're they're hearing is look there's not very much evidence Um, there's not really much concrete to go on with Jesus but you know that's kind of the game being a good Christian you just have to scrunch your eyes up puff out your cheeks and just squeeze out some faith for somewhere so I don't know whether this ever happened to you you get people who come up to you and say I wish I had your faith have you heard someone say that? And it often sounds like what they're really saying is, I wish I could commit myself to something that didn't really add up, but I'm afraid I'm just a bit too anchored in reality for that. But That can't be that, can it? I don't think that's the kind of faith that Jesus is after. I think it's best to understand believing as trusting, like trusting a person. You kind of trust, for example, that a husband and wife put in each other when they marry. Jesus asks us to believe in him, to put our trust in him, to lay the weight of our whole lives, our eternity on him. That kind of faith, that personal trust in Jesus, that's the way all the blessings of salvation are, are unlocked. So Jesus' challenges for us, I think, is this. Look, Do you feel that you know enough about who Jesus was, what he did, to entrust him with everything that is to come, whether that's your decisions, your future, your failures. Will we lean on him? Will we rest on him? Will we, in that sense, believe in him? And you know, as I ask that, I, I can imagine a range of responses from those who are listening right now. Perhaps as, as I pose that question, will you, will you believe in him, you're thinking, frankly, that seems like quite a big deal. That's a big ask. I'm not sure I can. Now, that's a very fair objection. There's a lot at stake here, isn't there? And so you want to get straight whether this is something you want to believe in. Why not join us on Thursday as we begin Christianity Explored? A great opportunity to work out, is Jesus worth that kind of trust? Come along if you're a skeptic. Come along if you're a believer with questions. Now, other people may be saying thinking well yeah i can i can believe i want to believe and i do believe some of the time with some of my life but i'm struggling to trust christ over here well perhaps it's time to share that struggle with a christian friend to tackle it in prayer perhaps i'd love to speak to you more about that if that's you for still others, it may be that you feel, well, yeah, this is me, actually. I, I, I've done it. I do believe. I feel like I, I've tried to turn my, around, my, my life around and, and to trust in Jesus. I have done perhaps for a long time. But let me be honest with you. It's not working. Life is not going well for me. Well, let me say to you, keep trusting. Keep trusting. Following Christ may feel really hard right now, But you know, part of the reason that we we trust in the Lord is because we cannot see the end from the beginning, but He can. He can see through it all, and He has won the future. He's done it. So let me encourage you believe. Let's pray. The Lord Jesus said repent and believe our Lord you know our weaknesses you know our failures so well and yet we come to you in awe of who you are the humble and glorious one and we want to commit ourselves again to you please help us take the crown off our own heads and place it on yours to repent to go your way day after day And please, by your spirit, give us power to live that way. And help us, Heavenly Father, to trust and believe, to lean the whole weight of our lives on you. And please, would you give us the encouragement, that deep assurance that we are doing the right thing to believe in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.